Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm speaking with Gabrielle Matthew, the author of Girl of Fire, and the host of New Books in Fantasy, another podcast channel on the same network. I first interviewed Gabrielle in 2017. Then we discussed her Falcon trilogy, specifically the first book, The Falcon Flies Alone, set in Switzerland and Germany in the late 1950s. In its combination of real settings and otherworldly incidents caused by experiments with psychedelic drugs, the Falcon novels cross back and forth between historical fiction and fantasy. Girl of Fire is different, the opening to a new sword and sorcery series, Barona's Quest. At a first glance, this too appears to be a believably medieval world. Summer, year 597, country of Tria, Barona. I woke up before the sun rose, a bitter taste in my mouth, dried tears scratching my cheeks. I had concealed my sorrow and doubt from father, meeting his reprimands with defiance. I would not marry any of the men he had suggested, though I was nearly eighteen. Not that I didn't want a man, but the heroic tales that I begged my mother for had formed my taste. I dreamt of a bold suitor with flashing eyes, a man light on his feet who would whirl me dancing to our wedding bed. I huddled under the blanket, wide awake and still angry. My belly ached. A sharp cramp pierced me. As if the restless night hadn't been enough, my moon time had arrived. The trickle of blood forced me to leave the warmth of the pallet I shared with my little sister. I slipped out from under the covers, grabbed a rag and pulled on a tunic, before stumbling out of our cottage into the dawn coolness. The sun was the sullen color of an old bruise, the stars invisible. I blinked in surprise. A fog wreathed the trees by the creek, though it was summer. It wended and slithered like the coils of snakes, flickering, white, thick. I was suddenly afraid to leave the safety of our yard. And now, please join me in welcoming Gabrielle Matthew. Hi, Gabrielle. I look forward to talking with you again. Well, thanks for inviting me. We discussed your path to becoming a writer in our earlier interview, which listeners can hear by checking out either of our channels on the New Books Network. We won't repeat that information here, so let's instead get straight to the inspiration for Girl of Fire. You mentioned in the acknowledgments section that you began writing this book at 14. Uh, Tell us how that came about. Well, it came about by necessity, so I wouldn't lose my mind. (laughs) I was going to boarding school in Austin But my parents and I lived right outside of Fort Hood. And my mother didn't drive. My father was at work all day. And obviously, I didn't drive at 14. I really didn't know anyone. So I was bored. And uh, my mother and I didn't have an exactly convivial relationship. And I just made my own world that I inhabited. I closed the door to my bedroom, and I would write all day long. But you wrote the, or at least you published, the Falcon Trilogy before revising, in fact, rewriting Verona's story. Why was that? 
Well, the Barana story went on for decades, and for decades I would try to get friends or new writing acquaintances interested in it, and I think I didn't really have a good group at the time, so what would happen is people would read a couple of chapters of it, and they would drift in and out of my world. It just didn't seem like it started off with enough of a bang to captivate anyone, so uh, to try to get a series going that would draw everyone in right away, it was easier to start fresh. You have three major point of view characters in this story, in addition to a couple of people who appear less often to tell their own parts of the tale. Still, it's obviously Barona's story. The whole series is called Barona's Quest. Tell us about her, her age, her background, but more generally her personality. What makes her not just a heroine, but your heroine? Well, when we first meet Barona, she's 17, and uh, she's remarkable in that she's very beautiful, but she's not quite aware of that because she's in a small village, and uh, she is stubborn. She has a definite personality, but I think what makes her my heroine, as opposed to making her a conventional fantasy heroine, is I find that fantasy heroines seem to come in one of two varieties. Either they're a young woman on the brink of adulthood and the romantic or essential aspects of that person tend to stay in the background. They're really just at the cusp of womanhood. Verona will have a lover in this book and she will have a lover in the next book. And the fact that she craves company and that she's drawn to people is an essential part of her character. The other thing that's different is we do see a common trope in fantasy is that of a bitter, wronged woman who becomes evil, the fascinating herself. Right now I'm watching the TV series The Witcher adapted from the books and video of the same name. And there's just a series of beautiful, enticing, but very evil witches. And Bruna is actually a kind person. She's not evil at all. And even though she's somewhat wronged in the books, uh, it's not to the point where she's so damaged that she's ever going to become a hostile and devious person. Well, she's actually very lovable, I think. Um, but there is an evil which. Uh for lack of a better term, in your novel, uh, because almost the first thing that happens after we meet Barona is that she encounters the water demon. Uh, now, I'm sure you don't want to reveal everything about the demon because that's part of the series, is that it's her past is revealed over time. And um, at least from the points of it that I've read, I have a feeling that she develops, or at least our appreciation for her develops over time. But right there in chapter one, it's obvious that she has, uh, to put it mildly, a boulder-sized chip on her shoulder and an extreme hostility toward Barona in particular and humanity more generally. Um, what can you tell us about that? Well, the demon has actually not always been referred to as a demon. One thing to realize about her is she was the first mother. She was, after an ineffable immaterial creator, she actually became the first material creator. And as such, we can infer that she began as somewhat of a loving force, but as generation of generation of 
new forms have begun inhabiting that earth. She's felt herself pushed more and more to the side, and the creatures that she formed have been pushed more and more to the side. And after she was imprisoned in a box and lowered to the bottom of the ocean in a scene that was later cut from the novel, she pretty much became insane with hatred. And she knows, which Barona does not, that Barona, my heron, is going to be the only thing that stands in her way of revenge. That sums it up (laughs) very nicely. Um, The next chapter shifts a few days back in time to the island nation of Vendrisi, and I hope I pronounced that correctly, and a different main character, Luca. So sketch for us, please, what's going on there and how it relates to the action in chapter one. Well, I wanted to pull in a whole different world and a different perspective. So Luca of Barona is not aware of the water demon, at the beginning, but his involvement is going to be very different. The water demon isn't particularly interested in him, and her actions affect him only peripherally. So uh, the beginning of that chapter kind of describes his general life. Uh, Luca is the prime of Vendrizi, which is an island nation of traders. And at the beginning of that chapter, he's only paying a courtesy visit but the fall of a meteor distracts him from that courtesy visit, and he finds out that's linked to the water demon gaining her freedom. So his priorities shift then. And Vendrisi and Treya, uh, which is Barona's country, are actually quite different in sociological terms. You mentioned that Vendrisi is a trading nation, but um, it's also much more scientific. And um, can you sketch the, the two their two lands uh, for us a little bit? Yeah, certainly. Tria is in the middle of what's called the heartland, which is a continent. And the heartland is like the original heart of that earth. So it has an old, deep connection to magic. While Vendrisi, which is an island in the ocean, has very little magic in it. And the people who live there are actually refugees long, long ago from an island. And the people who came there were artisans and scholars who were fleeing a tyrannical king. So they have a fairly democratic society, even though they have a prime and that office is passed through uh, by hereditary. And the prime... uh... Explain the, how the, how the uh, role of Prime is um, passed down and how that affects Luca's character and his understanding of his role. Well, that's a very strange thing. Uh, only the fifth child of the Prime can become the next Prime, which obviously means the Prime needs to have a lot of children, which uh, having children or not having children, continuing your race or your race dying out is a theme in the background of the book. And the reason the prime has to have five children is based on the fact that the refugees fled a mad king, and they believed, because among the refugees were also scholars, they believed the reason for the king's madness was that there hadn't been enough 
fresh blood, so to say, we would say fresh genetic material in the king's bloodline. So not only is the prime expected to father five children, but ideally he's expected to father those five children from five different mothers. There are at least several. So that means several things. While we usually think of a female ruler as having to be alluring so she can marry well, in this case, the men are almost like stud stallions. They have to be very charming. Of course, they're not going to force women to bear their offspring because these are usually women of other noble houses. They have to charm these women into bearing their offspring. So when we first meet Luca, I would say he's a likable but rather shallow character who's very concerned about his looks and his ability to manipulate people. But Oh, and before we actually get to the next question, he has a sister who is actually the fifth child of the prime. So there is a quirk uh, in this system as well. Yes, if you're born a woman and you're the fifth child and... A sixth one comes along, he takes your place if it's a man. So Layla is very bitter about that. Now, she won't have a big role until a third book, but she does taunt Luca enough in this first book to get him motivated to do something about the water demon rather than just resting on his laurels and wearing nice clothes. And how does the arrival of the water demon change Luca's path in life? Well, once he sees the water demon, he actually doesn't see her. He sees a wake of waves in the ocean and then realizes someone's jumped into the ocean prompted by her because the water demon can't convince people to kill themselves. He gets, I would say at first, his motive isn't so much being heroic and saving the people of the heartland, I'd say he's driven by scientific curiosity. And he has this kind of belief that with the science that he commands, he's going to find a better solution to the problem of the water demon than anyone on the heartland, because the people on the heartland are still waiting for the magic of another race, the elders, to save them. And the elders have withdrawn and are not going to do that. So Luca feels it's a challenge for him to make a better weapon. Now that's an interesting point that you've raised, because one of the things that I particularly like about the water demon as a character is that she she is deadly, um, but she is deadly in a in the sense of being a corrupting psychological force almost. Uh, so it's a unique take on it. She doesn't just, you know, zap people with her fingernails and have them go poof. Yeah, I think above a certain age, it becomes very boring, at least to me, to just see widespread death. Like I think many of us have had the experience of reading or seeing a fantasy series and there's just death upon death upon death. And after a while, it's like, all right, so there's another person dead. And then you can kill them in horrible ways, which is kind of disgusting. And you can have a certain shock value from that. I think 
for me, the inspiration was a book I read a long time ago called People of the Lie. I don't read many theological books because I'm not particularly religious. But in that book, it proposed that the devil, if the devil, so to speak, as a concept, not as a concrete force, is what takes us away from our truth and gives us these lies, as in people of the lie. And I applied that to her. I remember that book. I read it, oh, back in the late 70s, early 80s, mm-hmm. at Scott Peck. Yes, um, yes. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting book. Um, and I, uh, like you, I found it very compelling because when he talks about people of the lie, he's really talking about denial. Um family abuse and uh, that's covered up uh, generation after mm-hmm. generation. And you're right that the water demon does fit into that tradition. Um, but I didn't make the connection myself, so I'm <laughs> glad that you pointed it out. So let's loop back to Barona now. Um, her first instinct after running into the demon is to protect herself and her family. But her father's not initially supportive. Why is that? Well, let me just say here, I was a little surprised at some reviewers mentioned she came from an abusive family. Verna's family is not abusive. Uh, The society of Tria in particular is modeled on medieval times, and in medieval times, fathers especially had more responsibility to make their daughters fit the social norms, and if they failed to do so, other forces would come in play. So the most obvious reason that Bruno's father does not react well to her sighting of the demon is because he lives in a very religious society, and any type of girl who sees a demon would herself be suspect, because merely because she saw one, much in a way that certain societies will blame a sexual assault on a woman merely because it happened to her. Now, there are other reasons her father is not particularly supportive. Uh, One of them will be revealed in book two. And uh, another one that that is linked to it um, refers to the scandal about Barona's mother, which Barona does not know about. But Barona's father rescued Barona's mother, who came from a much higher social station, and has helped her maintain her standing in the community. But her standing is not particularly high, and her daughter seeing a demon would surely not enchant it. Yes, I I did get the impression that he was more fearful. Um, I mean, he is abusive by modern standards to some degree, I suppose, but definitely not by the standards of medieval Europe. So, Mm -hmm. Tria is a very conservative society. It's, It's quite different from Vendrisi in that respect also, even though, and this I thought was a nice touch, uh, the people actually worship a goddess. Yes. <laughs> and yet it doesn't seem to transfer to their perceptions of women. Um, how does that reality affect the choices that are available to Barona? Well, women in that society uh, are the responsibility of their father until they marry and become the responsibility of their husband. Now, since Verona's father is 
turned away from her request to defend the family against the appearance of the demon, and since she doesn't have a suitor that she likes, much less a husband, she doesn't know who to turn to for help. As her father pointed out, the local religious authorities, uh, chief among them, the intercessor, in other words, the person who intercedes to the goddess, were not particularly friendly to Barona. She's played a couple of pranks in a local shrine that she found entertaining that haven't enhanced her reputation. She spends a lot of times in the woods that are suspect. So in the first few chapters, she really doesn't know how she's going to get out of this fix that she finds herself in. The demon has threatened her family and threatened her, but she has no weapons and her father is unwilling to help her. So this brings us to the Manites um, in the person of Shandon, who is your third point of view, main point of view character in this book. They have a very different philosophy and social structure from both Tria and Vindrisi. So tell us about them. Well, the Manites were founded by Crossus Menina 1,200 years ago. Every 600 years in the society, in the entire heartland, it's a time of great upheaval, including social and political upheaval. The Manites have been outlawed by the priest king of Tria because they're somewhat an egalitarian society, at least in theory, although as so often the members who come from a noble background are treated differently than the members who came from poverty. Uh, the Manites dedicate their lives to knowledge, and there are three different types of cloaks that you can wear, that you can be initiated into. There's the healing sect and the magician sect, and then the warrior sect. And they're referred to as green robes, yellow robes, and, and uh, red robes. Mm-hmm. And they wear their robes uh, most of the time, depending on what part of the country they're in. The current political situation, they're somewhat tolerated, but the priest king does have a mandate, and at any time he could concentrate all his forces on them and eradicate them because legally they have been outlawed as a heretic sect. So uh, tell us about Shandon himself um, and why he seeks out Barona. Well, Shandon's kind of a quiet, keeping-to-himself character. He has a noble background, but um, because he's gay, (laughs) which I, I don't name in the book, he chose not to marry and ended up leaving his noble house and thinking he was going to have a quiet life with the Manites taking care of their library. But one day he got a prophecy, and this prophecy outlined the events that were to come with the return of the water dragon to the heartland and says there is only one way to save the heartland, and that is to find the girl of fire, which turns out to be Barona. Now, Shandon's looking for her himself because he's afraid there are traitors among the Manites that would scotch the whole plan. And he himself is of a noble background. Yes. And um, 
So as we know, even from the back cover blurb, uh, it's his arrival um, in Tria and his finding at Barona that sets her off on a new course. So obviously we don't want to go too far into your story, but we're still pretty much in the setup phase. So let us mm-hmm. know um, what happens next, basically. Well, Barona just found out she doesn't have the silver pieces she's going to need to get sword training. She had been hoping to go to another village and buy a sword and get someone to teach her how to use it because she's out of options against a demon. And that's just when Shandon turns up. Now, Barona's been told her whole life that it's very dangerous to speak to any Manites In the words of one person, their women are unchaste. (laughs) And there's Shandon wearing his yellow robe. So at first she wants nothing to do with him, but the longer she talks to him, the more she realizes that this is a situation she may be able to turn to her advantage. She is a simple village girl, but she recognizes that Shandon must have some money. He looks clean. His hair is cut. Uh, She can see the fine make of the sword he's carrying. So when he proposes that she joins him, she agrees, although she has some terms that she wants him to fulfill. We've barely touched the surface of this world. It's it's wonderfully imagined. It's um, magnificently detailed. Um, There are entire species that play greater or lesser roles in the story uh, and are... I, I imagine they will all eventually do more than just be mentioned, but the elementals, the elder race, the Kajari, um, there are imagined animals, the weather beaters, for example. Which of these are most important for readers of this first book to understand, and what can you share about them? Well, I think something I couldn't explain fully in the book, at the risk of dumping too much information, is the hierarchy between all the different races. The elder race was based on the elves. I I thought that was a novel concept until I started watching The Witcher, where the elves are also called elders. Too much for that. You can't do anything original these days. But the elementals are the, the children of the water demon. So they're the very first... They're like the roots of this tree of life that was made. And the elders are next. And then the branch races are the Kajari, who don't play a very big role. They're just kind of tenors based on dwarves and humans. And the background of what is happening is times are shifting and genetics are shifting to where men are much more adaptable, even though they're short-lived. And the elders and the elementals, the races that came before, are not adaptable at all. And they have limited breeding capability, or in the case of the elementals, no breeding capability. So they're getting displaced by the humans. And I think that's an important component of the first and second book, this is actually, actually, in a sense, it's a fight for territory, as so many wars are. And who has the right to be where and when? 
There are also characters we haven't discussed that play important roles in the book. Uh, Kendall, Hershey, Kia, Oberyn. Um, we won't even get into Luca's complicated love life. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> we did mention his sister, Layla, uh, who's in a sense a driving force, if only in the sense of driving him away. <laughs> um <laughs> Is there anyone in that group that you'd really like listeners to hear about? Uh, someone you have a particular fondness for, perhaps? Well, there is someone I have a particular fondness for, and that's Kendall. I'm no longer 18, so even even Deborona is very young, and I try to remember what I was like at that age. And Barona does do some foolish and complicated things. But I think Kendall is my favorite character, and in some ways she's the most like me or or like a certain part of me uh even though i'm i'm physically not a strong imposing person uh kendall is a warrior but she's very matter of fact there's a big trend now in having female warriors and they're just shown on screen or in books whirling around and decapitating people and but what would it actually be like to be a woman among men? Because we need to deal with the fact that in most societies, most of the warriors are going to be men because, first of all, they're not going to have children from their wombs that are going to distract them from being warriors, and they do have greater physical strength. So how would you deal with being one of only a few women in a warrior sect. And Kendall is very matter-of-fact about things. I mean, she's matter-of-fact about killing. She doesn't enjoy it, but she'll do it if she needs to. And she's very matter-of-fact about sex. She's not romantic about it. Um, She just looks at it as kind of a sporty activity. And I think she's, in in a strange way, she's kind of a, upbeat character because there's just nothing that really gets to her. So I like that about her. Yeah, I like her very much too. She's one of my favorite characters, absolutely. Uh, You could sort of imagine Verona growing into her one day. Uh, Although Verona is more, um, she's, she's not as practical, actually. She's more idealistic, I think. She's idealistic and she's a great romantic. Yes, she is. She's right. She's going to have her heart broken by Kia in the first book. Yes. <laughs> the beast. That. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kia has his good points, but like Luca, he has some similarities with Luca. He definitely enjoys the company of women, and he sees no reason to limit himself to just one. And she is 18. I mean, it's kind of early for her to find the... Some people do find the love of their life at 18, but most of us have to go through a few uh, turkeys before we figure out who the right <laughs> exactly. one is. <laughs> right, right. But you must have put a huge amount of work into developing such a multi-layered society. I mean, do you research this? I mean, is that even possible in a fantasy setting? Or how did you come up with it? That's definitely possible. And I think uh, when I started writing a series at 14, you know, I was in Colleen, Texas, so we didn't have a farmer's market. And the idea of farm to table was still a dream somewhere in San Francisco for Alice Water. So when I 
I started writing that, I realized I had no idea what grew when or what someone would be harvesting in September or what Verona's father would do to get money. And even at 14, those were interesting ideas to me. And when I laid the novel aside, because it wasn't going anywhere, you know, I was writing longhand back in those days. I didn't know how to end a book. I continued with my interest and actually in my 20s got very interested in gardening and then then in herbal medicine. When I worked at the first Whole Foods, before Whole Foods belonged to Amazon, I might point out. And I think the whole process of living my life has been part of finding that background. Then I also read some books. I don't have one of them in front of me, but I know it had underpants in the title. It was self-published. It was a great. Oh, yes, it, I have that book. Medieval underpants again? or something like that. Right. Yeah, blenders, blenders and bloopers. Like when uh, someone's writing a medieval book and they say, mention underpants. Well, people didn't have underpants back then. So I read a fair amount of books like that. And, of course, watch things like Last Kingdom to soak up the atmosphere. A tough job, but someone's got to do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Especially when a hero is in the water wearing nothing. <laughs> right. <laughs> <Really hard. laughs> Talking about Kia and Aitor Lickard. Mm-hmm. Uh, what would you like readers to take away from Girl of Fire? Well, one thing that no one has picked up on yet is there is a sense of female companionship as opposed to competition Towards the end of the book, Compass Lukia has been very important to Barona, and although he has disappointed her at times, he's also done very brave things for her and declared his love for her. And in the end, she's in a situation with another woman in a love triangle over him, and I feel like the decisions made there reflect the fact that even though romance and love are important, we have a higher calling in life. And we can't always place our immediate love concerns first. That's one thing that I was hoping people would take away from the novel that no one seems to have picked up yet. And uh, another thing was self-reliance. We have a lot of tropes in the fantasy world particularly but also in military movies like we're all in this together and we have these rules like here's the doofy little person no one thinks is gonna amount to a hill of beans but they do and here's the charming person and here's the very brave leader and uh, there's this idea well they're all gonna hold together and they're going to achieve this goal And in my book, I could have taken it in another direction. I think especially Barona being a young woman at the cusp of womanhood, there's, it's certainly good that women have cooperative ideals. And in this book, they also cooperate, but there's a point at which you just have to rely on yourself and feel that you are enough to do the job. So you're now working on Barona's Quest 2, which is called Champion of the Earth. Uh, Can you tell us anything about that book? 
Well, I can tell you, I don't really know how it's going to end. No, uh, the elementals play a much larger role in the second book. We're going to be getting into who and what they are and what their needs are and what makes them warlike. And we're going to be exploring how to balance their needs against the needs of humans. Should the elementals totally be eradicated? Should they be rehabilitated? Is there even a rehabilitation for them? What kind of options are open for peaceful coexistence, if any? And they are very limited. And we're also going to see Luca and Verona meeting. I mean, they meet at the end of the last book, and they continue to develop a relationship kind of as the represent representatives of their individual countries. I look forward to reading it. Um, and uh, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. No, thank you for uh, talking to me. This is great. Thanks. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books and Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Gabrielle Matthew, the host of New Books in Fantasy and Adventure, about Girl of Fire, the first book in her new trilogy, Verona's Quest. Find out more about her at www.gabriellematthew.com. That's G-A-B-R-I-E-L-L-E. M-A-T-H-I-E-U as one word. If you enjoyed today's podcast and would like to discuss it further with me and other New Books Network listeners, please join us on Shuffle. Shuffle is an ad-free, invite-only network focused on the creative community. As NBN listeners, you can get special access to conversations with a dynamic community of writers and literary enthusiasts. Sign up by going to www.shuffle.do slash nbn slash join. And goodbye until my next conversation on the New Books Network.